0: All right, now that we are recording, welcome again to our lecture with Francis Taveri. Thank
1: you, delighted to be here.
0: So excited to have you. Let me just tell everyone a bit about our speaker. Born in Massachusetts, Julie Flavel has pursued a lifelong interest in Anglo-American relationships as reflected in her first book, When London Was the Capital of America. A fellow of the Royal Historical Society, Flavel lives in, I believe you're in Scotland, do you say?
1: Yes, that's right. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And the book we'll be hearing about today is, hard to see with my background, The Howe Dynasty. I'm very excited to learn more about that. And before I turn it over, as always, our disclaimer, the views of the speaker are their own and are not necessarily reflective of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York or its Francis Tavern Museum. With the formalities out of the way, I will now um, turn it over to you,
1: Julie. Great, thanks very much, Sarah. A full disclosure, I wasn't actually born in Massachusetts. I was born in in New Jersey. (laughs) and moved to Massachusetts when I was about three. So um, anyway, uh, okay, what I'm gonna start with today is a question that I'm often asked at the end of my talks, um, which is how did I become interested in the house? And the fact is there isn't an easy answer to this because my interest in the house is lifelong and it evolved over many years. As I said, I, I grew up in the Boston area. And of course, the area is replete with stories about the War of Independence. And that's how I became an enthusiast for the American Revolution. And I was always intrigued by the figure of General Howe. Um, he seemed like to me like somebody with an unexplored backstory. He was the red coat general who, if the stories are true, was so well liked when he arrived in Boston in May, 1775, that a few weeks later um, on, on Bunker Hill, Yankee sharpshooters from behind the barricades uh, deliberately didn't fire at him. Um, and by 1776, in what was an unusual arrangement, he was uh, joint commander in chief of the army and Navy with his brother, Admiral Lord Howe. and And the impression that the Howe command was a family affair, is intensified by the fact that the brothers, as the Admiral and General were called during the war, had lost another brother 20 years ago um, at Fort Ticonderoga fighting the French. So neither Admiral nor General Howe had the usual profile of British career officers jumping into the War of Independence to uh, get ahead. And when I uh, came to study the American Revolution as a serious scholar, the impression of mystery around the house deepened because for over two centuries, there have been conspiracy theories surrounding the brothers to the effect that they were deliberately soft on the rebellion. And these theories have been taken seriously over the years by historians and scholars, and they've never completely died down. Um, But the fact is, of course, that even even without the conspiracy theories, uh, the House have taken the greatest share of the blame for Britain's failure to win the War of Independence and uh, because that the time that they were commanders in chief, the French hadn't yet come into the war. The American army still wasn't up to full professional scratch. And the British, of course, expected the war to be an easy victory. So like any commanders who fail in their objective, they've been accused of all sorts of missed opportunities, but they've also been accused of something more, something much worse, which is a deliberate failure to bring the war to a conclusion by avoiding an all-out confrontation with the enemy. And all sorts of motives have been adduced for this over the years, which which I'll bring up in in my paper. And the sense of mystery about the house was compounded by an accidental fire that occurred just uh, a few decades after the War of Independence, which destroyed all the family Private papers. So as a result, uh, they've been declared a closed door by historians. You can't find anything out about the house, the Howe family life. Um, everything has to be taken just from military dispatches. So, so that it seemed like a, a a dead end to to decide to research the house. But I was led back to them in a very unexpected way. I was looking for material for a sequel to my book when London was capital of America. And in quest of that material, I went to the letters of Caroline Howe, um, the the sister of the admiral and the general. Um, Now, her letters are in the Spencer papers in the British Library. Um, This is the Spencer family who were the ancestors of Princess Diana and Caroline Howe's closest friend was Lady Georgiana Spencer. And over a period of about 40 years, they kept a very close correspondence. And when I went to these letters, I was surprised to find that within within all this correspondence was a huge amount of personal information about the Howe family. So in effect, it was a Howe family papers. And there's absolutely no doubt that if these letters had been written by a brother of Admiral and General Howe, Um, They would have been thoroughly combed through by military historians by now, but instead they were entirely, they've been neglected. Um, And so I decided to write a biography of the Howe dynasty, the first ever biography. So today, I'm going to introduce the Howe family members, um, some of them well known, some of them not. I'm going to stress the women because they're the lesser known family figures. And I'm going to include portraits from Earl Howe's private collection, some of which are extremely rare. And in the process, I'm going to show how much is lost when biographies of professional men neglect their private and personal and family lives. Because a lot of what's misunderstood about the brothers comes out in the context of their family. And because I'm speaking at the Francis Tavern today, I'm going to highlight the New York connections of the Howe's as I go along. So I'll start with Charlotte Viscountess Howe. First image, please. Uh, Can I get the first image, Sarah? Thank you. Yes. This lady was the mother of Admiral and General and Caroline Howe. And it was her ambition that turned the Howes into a celebrated military family in the 18th century. She was born in 1703. She had royal blood because her mother was the illegitimate half-sister of King George I of England, who was also the elector of Hanover. Um, so Charlotte and her family came to England in 1714 when George I came to the throne. And just a few years later, at the age of 16, she married Scrope Howe, second Viscount Howe. And this is her wedding portrait. She's, you can see her beautiful silk dress, all the Howes loved dogs. So there she is with her little spaniel. Um, now, this probably wasn't an arranged marriage because Scrope Howe was relatively poor by aristocratic standards. Um, his title wasn't an English title. It was an Irish title. And that meant that he didn't sit in the British House of Lords. Um, so in order to be in Parliament, he had to get elected. When they married, he was only 20 and wasn't yet didn't yet have a seat in the House of Commons. Scrope died in 1735 after 16 years of marriage. And he left Charlotte with Uh, eight children from the ages of 13 to a babe in arms. And at that point, the dynastic fortunes were in dire straits because Scrope and Charlotte had spent quite heavily, partly on parliamentary elections. So retrenchment was absolutely essential. Uh, The the boys in the Howe family at this point were too young to take up any well-paying government posts that aristocratic families often use to patch up um, their financial needs. Um, They pulled the boys out of Eton to save money on school fees, and for several years, Charlotte and her children lived in the homes of wealthy relatives. And things only changed in 1743 when Charlotte became lady-in-waiting to Princess Augusta. Augusta was the mother of the future King George III. Um, She'd arrived from a German-speaking country to marry Frederick, George III's uh, father. The position actually didn't pay that all that much. It it, 400 pounds a year, uh, which was a lot then, but not so very much as all that. And you had to spend so much on the clothing that was a requirement for court attendance that um, the the money, the pay almost swallowed up all of the the clothing and and the expenses of living. Um, The real value of the post was that it gave Charlotte connections to find suitable careers for her sons. Um, The Howes couldn't afford university. They could barely afford Eton. And in an age when the oldest son of a dynasty usually stayed safely home on the family estate, um, playing Lord of the Manor, all the boys had to find some kind of work. So the obvious career was the armed forces. And within a couple of years, Charlotte had arranged for William Howe, the future General Howe, to become a, a page, a page of honor at court. And this was a job for teenage boys who would do some light service at court. And at the same time, they'd be trained for military careers, taught horsemanship, swordsmanship, and so forth. And the future Admiral Howe, Richard, was obliged to start his sailing career in the merchant marine. And this this was a very unusual thing for aristocratic families to do because um, the merchant navy was considered, even if you were an officer, to be going into trade, which of course was ungentlemanly because uh, merchant officers invested in their cargoes. Um, However, at the age of 14, Richard finally became uh, a midshipman in the Royal Navy. Could I have the next image, please? The image, please. Thank you. This is a very rare, it hasn't been reproduced until my book, it's a very rare portrait of Richard Howe that the the Howe family owned. Um, This was him uh, during the Seven Years War, probably, they're not certain of the the period, but he's obviously a captain based on his uniform. Um, And we, the family think it was a wedding portrait. So with the start of the Seven Years War in 1756, and of course it's the French and Indian War in America, um, Charlotte became the virtual head of the dynasty because all of the Howe men were serving overseas during this war. And she was in a very influential position because she was very close friends with Lady Yarmouth who was the mistress of King George II. And through it was through her influence that George Augustus, Lord Howe, the third Lord Howe was made a brigadier general in America. Now George has the dubious distinction of being the only British peer who's buried in America. So it gives you an idea of the ending of my story. Um, his remains are in St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Albany. There's a triangular bronze plaque there with his, um, that marks the spot. And to tell how he got there, uh, I'll go back a few years to his childhood. Can I have the next image, please? Um, this is George Augustus Lord Howes. another very rare portrait that hasn't been reproduced before. Um, this is an image of him as Cupid, at the age of 10 or so, um, dressed for a masquerade, which was a very popular form of entertainment in the period. Now, as the oldest boy, George was um, the future head of the dynasty, he was the hope of the family, and he clearly felt the pressure. He was a mad cricketer, he played cricket for money for very high stakes, that was fashionable then. He also was a reckless rider at hunting events, occasionally having injuries and, and even getting into the newspaper with his injuries. His mother, Charlotte, used her influence to make George an ensign in the prestigious regiment of foot guards. That was one of the most prestigious army regiments in 1745 at the age of 20. And as soon as he was in the foot guards, he volunteered for service on the continent, because at that point, the Austrian, the War of the Austrian Succession was in train, King George's War in America. And George made the London newspapers by single-handedly capturing several enemy officers. Um, and the newspapers described him as an English nobleman who had spirit and courage. So that was beginning of the panache he always showed in battle situations. So his enthusiasm made a, a very good choice for service in America in 1757, once the French and Indian War had begun. I, the next image, please. Let's show George a little, a little older, a little more in character, here he is in his guards uniform. Um, The British army needed to learn wilderness style warfare during the Seven Years War. They felt the French had very much the advantage over them. And George actually pioneered this. By the summer of 1757, he was at Fort Edward in upstate New York. And in that summer, Major Robert Rogers was conducting a, a Sort of course for British officers, so that they could learn wilderness and ranging techniques. And George went ranging with Robert Rogers, who really admired him and thought he was great. And then George introduced these light techniques, effectively creating a light inf- infantry in the British army. And he int- he insisted he was very popular with the American soldiers in the Seven Years' War because he was he had a very egalitarian manner, and he insisted that his own officers cut their hair, that they drop a lot of their baggage, do their own cooking and so forth and get rid of their heavy braid. Um, And in in fact, in the 20th century after World War II, one American historian called George Howe, um, the most popular British officer ever to serve alongside American soldiers. But George's command ended in tragedy because in 1758, he was killed in a failed attempt to take Fort Ticonderoga, which wouldn't be successfully taken from the French until the next year. And and the intense heat meant that he had to be buried in Albany. Now, the the colony of Massachusetts, out of gratitude, paid to have a monument to George raised in Westminster Abbey, which you can still see today. And the Howe family took this as their memorial um, for their loss. Um, Now, the one story about Charlotte, George's mother, that occasionally gets a brief mention in the history books was what happened when the news of George's death reached England. Because as soon as in those days, politics was very much an aristocratic game. And as soon as uh, the news reached England, Um, Of course, this meant that George's parliamentary seat in Nottingham was vacated um, because he had been MP for Nottingham. The House regarded the Nottingham seat as theirs by right. Um, A predatory political manager, the Duke of Newcastle, tried to install a favorite into that seat. And Charlotte had to prevent him by doing something that was very out of character for a, a woman of her rank, which is she appealed over his head to the voters of Nottingham by putting a piece in the news, in the newspaper. And she positioned herself as a, a vulnerable female, a grieving mother. She said, permit me to implore the protection of every one of you as the mother of him whose life has been lost in the service of his country. And she asked them to choose William, her son William as MP for Nottingham. And the, it worked, the Duke threw up his hands and the, the future General Howe became MP for Nottingham. And this was such an unusual step for, for a woman to take that, it, that the piece was reprinted for several years afterwards. It made Charlotte quite popular because aristocratic Georgian women often did involve themselves in politics, but it was, it was in the drawing room and they were supposed to stay strictly out of the public eye. And if they did draw too much attention to themselves, it heaped it tended to heap criticism and even abuse on them. But Charlotte was seen as a stereotypical British mother. Um, Now, the next how we're going to talk about is Caroline. Can I have the next image, please? This is Caroline Howe. It's the only painting remaining of her. It's another rare painting. Um, This is her in her nineties. We're gonna roll the cameras back a bit. And she's sitting at her desk, writing a letter. And of course, she was a prolific letter writer. And she's the person who um, the letters that form the core of my book uh, were written by. And you can see in front of her is the Times, the London Times. The London Times had just started a few years ago. Um, She kept up with the news. She was extremely well-informed. She was the oldest daughter. She was older than the Admiral in general. And she was raised to take an active part in drawing room politics. So she kept contacts up at court. Um, she knew everybody who was influential. And throughout her life, just to show the bias of the times, she was described as having a mind like a man. And in fact, uh, she, she actually liked maths, which was something a little unusual in the ladies, according to Ben Franklin. Um, she was self-educated. She understood Latin, French, Greek. She read very widely, novels, travel literature, the classics. But she was also athletic for the day she lived in. She actually belonged to the beaver fox hunt, which exists still today and uh, operates out of Rutland Castle. And this was probably not because she liked blood sports, but because riding was one form of physical exercise, the only form of physical exercise really that a lady uh, could do in those days. And she also loved to gamble at cards, which brought her into contact with a lot of the leading political figures of her day. Um, By the start of the revolution, Caroline was a widow. She'd married a man named Howe who was no relative. Um, She lived in a stylish townhouse in Grafton Street. Next next image, please. Um, This is her house. Tragically, it was torn down in the 1980s. It's, It's the one with the bow window that's you can probably just see it. it had been turned into a bookshop by this time. And if you looked to, just to the left of her house, the bow windows, you can see a, a building with a white front, just a bit of it. And that was the original facing of her building. Um, the Victoria, In the Victorian era, it was covered over with the stucco work that you see there in this picture. And it was to this house that Caroline would invite Benjamin Franklin to play a game of chess that would ultimately involve her brothers in the War of Independence. And at this point, Franklin had been in London for over 10 years as a spokesman for the American colonies. In November, 1774, um, six months before the War of Independence began, Char- uh, Caroline sent a challenge to Benjamin Franklin through uh, a fellow member of the Royal Society who was a friend of hers and who Franklin knew. And what she said was she said she had heard he was a skilled chess player and she fancied she could beat him. Okay, she was very competitive at chess and so was Franklin. And so he he went and can, can I have the next picture please? Um, These pictures, the the, the image of Caroline Howe and Benjamin Franklin playing chess together was popular in the 19th century. The picture on the right uh, where you see Admiral Howe sitting with Caroline and Benjamin Franklin was a frontispiece for a book. It was often printed in uh, autobiographies of Benjamin Franklin in the 19th century, an image of this. The one on the left is at Yale University now and she, he's, she's called Lady Howe, she wasn't Lady Howe, it's just a, an error in the, the artist's title. Um, so he, he, he began coming regularly to her house to play chess and he came quite often through December and he thought, he thought it was all innocent fun and he liked Caroline very, very much uh, but then he discovered that what she was actually doing was she was constructing a cover because George in London was very gossipy. Um, Her street was a very straight street. Everyone could see everyone coming and going. And she was trying to acclimatize her nosy neighbors to the sight of the notorious rebel, Benjamin Franklin. He was becoming notorious by then, coming and going at her house in Grafton Street. And on Christmas day, she suddenly said, would you like to meet Admiral Howe? Uh, And the upshot of that was that secret talks took place between Franklin and Admiral Howe. And at this point, Admiral Howe was working with Lord Dartmouth, um, the one for whom Dartmouth College is named, who was the only member of the British government at this point who was looking for a peaceful solution to the crisis in America and how asked Franklin for proposals that might satisfy the American leaders. Um, now, Caroline was in on all these meetings and I've discovered through her letters that she was the person who, who introduced the Howes to Lord Dartmouth because historians have wondered how the Howes got involved with Dartmouth because they didn't know him. But Caroline knew Lady Dartmouth um, because they worked on charitable work together. And at the very time that Lord Dartmouth was considering uh, and pushing in in the cabinet, his his idea of a peace proposal, um, Lady Dartmouth was sick, had a sick baby, and Caroline was visiting her frequently, and she so she be, she was brought in the idea of getting her brothers involved. Dartmouth's idea was a joint military diplomatic mission to America. You have to remember the war hadn't started at this point, so. The government was determined to send military reinforcements to America, and Dartmouth wanted to send a spokesman too to speak with American leaders and see if the halt, the the slide to war, could be halted. And the Howes were reasonably good candidates for a mission like this because uh, General Howe, uh, then Colonel Howe, uh, had had experience of American wilderness warfare, and Admiral Howe, the Howes themselves, were very popular because of George Lord Howe. Um, Now we know that these talks were unsuccessful and Franklin returned to America in March, 1775, and he joined the second Continental Congress. But the secret talks in London would eventually become part of the legend of the house because loyalists, the word got around that they'd taken place. And when the war stalled and and loyalist Americans became angry with the house, a, a, a rumor started that Admiral Howe had been manipulated by Benjamin Franklin in these meetings and that he'd been puffed up with this kind of image of himself as the savior of the um, empire. And that if the Howe brothers were soft on the rebellion, this would assist in bringing the American leaders to the, the bargaining table. Um. And this has a very modern twang, a, a conspiracy theory. I mean, for us, it's a, a, a conspiracy theory to explain something that people found very hard to accept, uh, which was that the, the American war wasn't the easy victory that the British had been told to, be, to, to expect. And this leads me to two women who weren't part of, who weren't actually Howes, but they are part of the Howes story, Elizabeth Loring of Boston and Judith Replank of New York. Um, In 1777, it was becoming obvious that the American war was stalling. The Howe brothers had captured New York, but they haven't captured much else. Washington's army had put the British on the defensive by counterattacks at Princeton and Trenton and British public opinion began to attack the brothers. And the conspiracy theories that I mentioned quickly gained traction. The brothers were accused of deliberately losing a war that had been given out as impossible to fail. And several motives were pulled out um, that were popular. One of them was that they secretly supported the rebellion because the Americans had raised a monument to their brother. In other words, they were sentimental. Another was that they wanted to prolong the war to make money. Now that, that actually, the idea of aristocratic army officers prolonging the war be, to enrich themselves was one that persisted whenever wars went badly in Britain in both the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and so so that was one idea that was around. And another was the one I mentioned, that they, they had this idea that they could make themselves into the saviors of the empire by talking the Americans into coming to the bargaining table and uh, negotiating some kind of peace. And that they had this idea that if they uh, were soft on the rebel army, this would be more likely to bring the Americans around to talks. Um, Next image, please. The next image I'm gonna show you is, this is a cartoon uh, that came out in London in 1777. And this is the two brothers, they're sitting at a table and they're talking about how they should get rich. And you can see Satan between them saying, how, how, prolong the war. The main target of um, all this abuse uh, in the media was General Howe, and the central figure in in the business of the media-based conversion of his image from a a popular hero of the Seven Years' War to this kind of decadent aristocrat who couldn't win the War of Independence was a woman named Elizabeth Loring. And she was a Boston woman um, he'd met when he arrived there in 1775. And she and her husband, Joshua Loring, were loyalists, They'd taken refuge in Boston after after the battle of Lexington and Concord. And when General Howe evacuated Boston, they followed him to Halifax as did many loyalists. And then they came to New York with him in 1776. And there Joshua was made a commissary of prisoners by William Howe. And it was early in 1777, the campaigning had stopped for the winter. And of course, Washington had struck back leaving the army on the defensive This is when the rumors really began starting that Elizabeth Loring was William Howe's mistress. Um, And and they started first in private letters written by loyalists in New York City um, and sent to London. Now, in those days, um, during wartime especially, letters from wherever the fighting was going on were often read out loud in public houses And, you know, the west end of Boston and the city were hothouses of gossip. The gossip would end up in the newspapers. Um, The story that was being promulgated was that Joshua Loring stood by and allowed the general to make free with his wife in return for his job as a commissary. Um, So the rebel newspapers picked this up as well because, you know, the London press was angry at the House. So they they picked this story up and, and the argument was that, um, how was so was enjoying himself so much that he wouldn't get out and fight um, and of course the the American newspapers were happy to pick up the sordid story as well and publish it in the rebel newspapers so the house were getting it from all sides um, they'd been popular in America but now they were being made over to be these middle-aged bloated decadent aristocrats um, and the image that was widespread was of William Howe in bed with Mrs. Loring. Some of you may have heard the jingle written by Francis Hopkinson. Um, Sir William, he snug as a flea, lay all this time a-snoring, nor dreamed of harm as he lay warm in bed with Mrs. Loring. And, and this is the kind of jeering um, broadsides and abuses abuse that the House had to put up with. Now, historians have barely looked into the facts of Mrs. Loring's life, but she's continually alluded to in history books about the House as William Howe's mistress. It's always been assumed that the gossip is true um, without anyone bothering to look up anything about her really or who she was. Um, but I, by looking at Ms. Mrs. Loring through the lens of the Howe family, I think it's very unlikely that she was William Howe's mistress. Um, Elizabeth Loring was born in 1752 to the Lloyds, who were a very well-to-do family in Long Island. And the house she was born in, the Joseph Lloyd Manor, it still stands today in Huntington, Long Island, and it can be visited. Um, she moved to Massachusetts when she was a girl, um, and by the time she met William Howe in May 1775, she was married to Joshua Loring, and who was from a wealthy local family, and she had several children. Um, And William did indeed meet her as soon as he came to Boston, but not, as people always claim, because of her flashing blue eyes and her blonde hair, but because he already knew her family. He had served alongside her husband, Joshua, in the Seven Years' War at Havana, Cuba. And more importantly, William believed that her uncle, James Lloyd, Dr. James Lloyd of Boston had saved his life. William Howe was at the siege of Louisburg under General Wolfe in 1758, and his regiment went to Boston afterwards, and there he fell very dangerously ill. And he always believed that he owed his life to Dr. Lloyd. Um, So he obviously was introduced to um, Elizabeth in that context. And also, when, when Elizabeth met William in May, 1775, she was four months pregnant which isn't an auspicious time to begin an affair. And this is a fact that none of the military historians has bothered to look up. Her baby was born in October, 1775, and he was named John Wentworth after the last royal governor of New Hampshire. And the reason this matters is John Wentworth was also refugeeing in Boston at the very same time. So he stood godfather to the baby. He was Joshua Loring's employer and, The Wentworths knew William Howe's wife, Frances Howe. So when they returned to London eventually, they associated with Frances Howe. So it's simply unbelievable that William would choose as a mistress, a woman whose friends and family were part of his own circle, knew his wife, and in a day when ranked mattered, uh, a woman who was from a respectable middle-class background. And there's actually no direct evidence of the affair, which is something some historians have mentioned. But the episode does show an unpleasant misogynistic streak in the attempts to blacken the Howe name. Um, I do think, however, because of some remarks William Howe made when he got back to England, um, which to me sound confessional and guilty, that he did have a lover, a lover in New York. So I looked into this. Um, Judith Fraplank, she was born in Amsterdam to a wealthy Dutch family, and she was married to New York merchant Samuel Schoepleinck. Now, during the War of Independence, Judith and Samuel Schoepleinck lived apart. Um, can I have the next image, please? Judith lived at 3 Wall Street, and you can see um, a, a little bit of her house, uh, in, in the house on the right. Um, you can with the carriage in front of it. That's part of her wall, the Furplank Wall Street mansion. Um, and Samuel Verplank remained at the Fishkill um, homestead, Fiplanck homestead in Upper New York State. Um, now, Judith was a loyalist. Samuel was a patriot. Um, But it was also suspected that the reason they lived apart was that they were concerned that that way, no matter which side won the war, they would retain all their property. And uh, there were a number of wealthy American families who did this. But it's worth noting that after the War of Independence, they never lived together again. Judith remained in the Wall Street mansion where she died in 1803. And it may be that Samuel was annoyed because his wife, instead of just living quietly in her mansion as a loyalist, actually entertained uh, the British officers in occupied New York City. And in fact, her house became a very popular salon for high-ranking British officers. And among them was Sir William Howe. She was in her mid-30s when Howe arrived in Manhattan. She was a well-educated woman, like the Howe women. She traveled, she was a very lively conversationalist. And at the time, there was a whisper that she had a relationship with Sir William Howe, but it's all forgotten today. And there is, however, evidence of Sir William Howe's liking for Mrs. Fraplank, which can still be seen at the Metropolitan Museum of Art today. Can we have the next slide? Um, Yes, this is the Fraplank Room, which is an installation in the American Wing Metropolitan Museum of Art and it assembles objects and furnishings of a pre-revolutionary New York drawing room. Um, I know the paneling and other aspects of the room don't necessarily come from the Fraplank House, but the furniture, the mahogany furniture, um, the silver candlesticks and so on, were part of the Fraplank drawing room. And also in the room um, are the remnants or parts of several gifts that Sir William Howe sent to Judith Fraplank after he returned home to England in 1778. There's a single teacup left of an entire French porcelain tea set that he sent to her, sprinkled with blue cornflowers and gold bands. But more revealing are two paintings he sent her in the style of Angelica Kaufmann. Can I have the next panel, please? The next image. Sorry, that, yeah. These paintings, The Temptation of Eros and The Victory of Eros, some might think they're suggestive. They show a saucy looking Cupid coming up to a young woman and then he leaves her looking disheveled as he hurries away. Um, it could be that Samuel Verplank didn't particularly like looking at those over his wife's um, fireplace. So it could, I think it's entirely possible, very likely that he did have an affair with Judith Verplanck. Um, be that as it may, there are no remaining portraits of Judith, uh, but there are, and there also aren't any verifiable original portraits of Sir William Howe. Next image, please. But the, the image that you mostly see uh, in, in books of William on William Howe is this one. It's a mezzotint. It's probably a copy of a lost painting, an oil painting of General Howe. It came out in early 1777, when news of his New York victory had reached London. Um, these kinds of pictures often could make a lot of money for a printer, a victorious general. Um, it's sometimes used to argue that William Howe loved finery, but the trouble with that argument is that the sash and star you see are this are from his honor as a Knight of the Bath. Um, that was given to him in December, 1776. He never sat for this picture and whoever created the mezzotint drew it on in imagination. If we want to know what William Howe looked like, oddly, um, the surviving descriptions all compare him to General Howe, his adversary. Um, After the war, this is one example, a Philadelphia woman recalled, Sir William Howe was a fine figure, full six feet high and well proportioned, in appearance not unlike his antagonist, General Washington. And and that's the kind of thing that was often said. Howe and Washington are often compared in books. They were the same height, roughly the same age. They were both uh, uh, reputedly unafraid of bullets on the battlefield, you know, as bullets fired around them. They'd both suffered a great deal of, seen a lot of great uh, difficult service in the Seven Years' War. And they both were inexperienced commanders in chief at the start of the War of Independence they both expressed doubts privately on this score about whether they could, you know, whether they were fit for the job. And there, in the usual accounts, the similarities end because, as we've seen, William Howe was made over to be a debauched, indolent commander, and Washington had a very different image. Um, Curiously, Washington was lionized not only by the Americans, but in the British press as well. He was held up as the kind of the type of an Anglo-American hero. One London newspaper called him the flower of American chivalry. And and even in the private circles of the Howe women during the war, there were aristocratic women who declared they adored General Washington. Um, And this does reflect negative attitudes in Britain towards the war. Um, The British, most British people did not support American constitutional claims, but they weren't comfortable with the war of independence because the British historically have liked to feel they support underdogs. And from the start of the American Revolution, they were uncomfortable with their role as Goliaths pitted against the colonial David as it were. And so as the British newspapers Uh, began to attack their own unsuccessful commanders. They held up Washington as this kind of self-sacrificing hero who stood for the kind of qualities British officers should have. Um, And, of course, the uh, entire Howe family hated this, and they blamed figures in the British government who they felt didn't do enough to stop it. But what I think William would have disliked the most wasn't this, but a fabrication that started within a a few decades of the peace, which was that the Battle of Bunker Hill had left him so shaken up and and traumatized that he felt unable ever after to confront Washington in a direct attack, notably at the Battle of Brooklyn. And and this this tradition has been repeated. It's even repeated in history books today um, that Bunker Hill Uh, which admittedly was a Pyrrhic victory for the British, um, in which redcoat generals were marched directly into American fire by Howe. Um, They did suffer some of the worst British casualties of the war that this left William uh, afraid to do do any further direct attack on Washington. And it's been used to account for his preference for avoiding direct attacks on strongholds around New York the following year, especially at the Battle of Brooklyn in August, 1776. But at Brooklyn, uh, William was aware that Washington would have liked nothing better than to reprise Bunker Hill. Washington had green troops under him. They were a lot more comfortable firing from ramparts, Um, but instead Howe denied Washington his wish and dug in and Washington finally realized he was being surrounded and that the Royal Navy was also going to trap him on the East River. Um, so, of course, on the night of August 29, under cover of darkness, the American army evacuated and a storm, assisted them with cover. In, in Britain the news of the victory at Brooklyn was greeted with national relief because people were actually traumatized by the news of Bunker Hill in Britain. And they expected there to be another massive slaughter at New York. And the newspapers, of course, in what we'd call fake news, um, got going with stories about entire regiments where only four men were left standing and so forth. So people were immensely relieved and, and thrilled when Howe sent word of his victory at Brooklyn. Um, And it was after Brooklyn on September 11, 1776, that Admiral Howe finally met Benjamin Franklin and with him, John Adams and Edward Rutledge of South Carolina for what was the last meeting of a British official and colonial Americans ever to take place. Um, I can call them colonial Americans. They, They met as private gentlemen because the Continental Congress was not willing to officially send any delegates to this meeting because Britain wouldn't recognize American independence, which, of course, had been declared some months earlier. And the conference accomplished nothing for that reason, because, you know, the the, the three Americans said we're not willing to negotiate except as an independent country. Um, Britain certainly wasn't willing to do that at this point. So the meeting, they met, they enjoyed a good meal, they talked for, briefly, and that was it. The meeting took place at today at Conference House on Staten Island, which can be visited today. I haven't had the good fortune to be there. I'd love to go. Um, now I want to conclude with famous portraits of Admiral Howe and his wife, Lady Howe. Can I have the next image, please? These are by Gainsborough. The portrait of Mary Countess Howe is called his most inspired portrait of an English lady she has a forthright stance as you can see and and combined with her uh, genteel English features and dress she characterizes the Howe women and today these portraits reflect the 18th century Howe dynasty as it's remembered in Britain. Um, It's Admiral Howe who's best remembered in the UK today because he was the victor of the first major sea battle of the wars of the French Revolution, which would come to be the Napoleonic Wars. And that was the glorious first of June in 1794. At that time, Nelson wasn't so well known. And it's the glorious first of June. He was in his 60s at the time. Um, The glorious first of June is is what Admiral Howe was remembered for. Uh, In Langer, Nottinghamshire, which is where the Howes were from, uh, he, he is in a tomb. He's buried in a tomb in the church in Langer and the village still celebrates the Glorious church First. Everybody gets together and has a, has, cracks open a bottle of champagne around Admiral Howe's tomb. And I went there and locals who read my book told me that they had absolutely no idea of the Howe's connection with the American War of Independence. Um, so there you are. The Glorious First restored the Howe dynasty as a leading military family of the 18th century in Britain. And five days after the battle, the Howe women knew about the victory. And, and Caroline described herself as half out of my senses and wild with joy. Wild with joy was a favorite expression of hers. Um, people lined up in Grafton Street to come in and congratulate her. She had a letter from the King and so forth. And, and there's a monument today to Admiral Howe in St. Paul's Cathedral. Now I started by saying that I thought the house had an unexplored backstory. A family story, and my research uncovered just that. Um, my whole family history of the house reveals so much about the brothers and the feelings of the family. And it's so, it's the first ever biography of what I like to think of as a British first family of the War of Independence who had as much at stake as the Adamses and the Jeffersons. Thanks very much. I'm happy to take questions.
0: There I am, thank you so much, Julie. That was really, really interesting. Um, Definitely not um, a family I knew too much about going into it. So I'm excited to read the book and learn even more. Uh, All right, if you haven't already submitted your questions, we have a couple here, feel free to drop them in the Q&A. So first question, um, you mentioned it at the end, just clarifying from George in the Q&A, was William Howe at the conference house On September 11
1: seventy six. No, no, he was not. I, I don't think the house. um, He actually was busy um, getting ready to to attack Manhattan. (laughs) He was he was so he he was too busy doing that. And it's sometimes said that the house um, expected a lot out of this meeting, and that as a result, Sir William Howe was you know going slow. Um, in the investment of, of Manhattan, but actually that's the reason he wasn't there. He wasn't going slow. He was hurrying on with the business of chasing Washington. Okay, so
0: he had other things to be. Yes, like. that's right. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually on Staten Island right now. So very close to the oh, conference yeah. house. Uh, all right. So is, uh, let's see, from Judith. Judith says, I am from New Rochelle, New York which had many loyalists. I was always told general Howe marched through New Rochelle on his way to the Battle of White Plains do you know if that is true
1: no <laughs> I don't I'm afraid. <laughs> but you do you not have a local historical society yeah.
0: that's it's a good question something to explore um yeah. hopefully we'll have more more answers yeah, I'm,
1: I'm sure it's in the in the military history books I I my military history I mean I've had to learn a lot for this book I'm not that kind of, you know, the level of maps expert mm. <laughs> on military <laughs> history. It's, a, it's an interesting question, though. And yeah. then if you do find out, find out what old roads are still, you know, that haven't been paved over were the ones they went down. Yeah, very
0: interesting. All right. Um, let's see. So many questions coming in. Um, from these, we will kind of go together. So we have a question from Stephen and a question from George that are kind of on the same level. So the question from Steven was, did Washington ever meet the House face to face? And from George, it was, is there any truth to the story that Washington once returned a dog to Howe during the war?
1: Ah, okay. Um, I, no, I don't believe they ever did meet face to face. No, they didn't. Um, I'm just trying to think. They almost did in Boston. That's what's confusing me. Yeah, no, they did not. They never met face to face. The dog thing is very interesting because it is true that Washington did return his dog to General Howe. But as I say, the house were all dog lovers. And um, yes, his dog apparently got lost behind the American lines. I think it was at the Battle of Germantown and he had a collar on with the Howes um, pressed on it. And so Washington returned him with a note. And it said that um, it's it, not known what type of dog it was but it was thought to have been a terrier. And it's said that William was so happy to see the dog that he picked it up, even though it was all muddy, and put it on his lap. And you know he had, of course, the white breeches that the <laughs> generals wore. Um, but it's there is actually quite interesting because there are, there are a lot of stories like this um, around the War of Independence. And Caroline Howe, um, subsequently in in Britain, she was also a dog lover. Uh, she met another dog who'd been the, the pet of an American. Uh, officer who was killed at Saratoga. And that dog was brought home to Britain and defected and became the loyal dog of a, of a British officer and used to carry his baskets of fish for him. And it was funny that, that she wrote this story down because she loved dogs too, the whole family did. Okay, next question.
0: And that's something in common with George Washington. Yes. <laughs> everyone loves dogs. <laughs> All right. Um, From Josiah in the Q and A, why do you think the Howe's roles in the War of Independence is largely forgotten in British popular memory today?
1: I I think that I mean it. it, I was really surprised that these people in uh, Langer didn't know about it because they're really really interested in Admiral Howe, and I mean how how could they have not? You don't have to look far, you know, studying his life to see that he was involved in the war of independence. And it was certainly important to him. He bitterly resented the criticism of the house, Admiral Howe did. Um, I think that actually, um, the British really avoid reading about the American war of independence. And, you know, they say, I mean, I live in Britain and and it is said of the British now that they are still having a little bit of trouble accepting the fact that they aren't um, a superpower and I I think some of it's just that I mean they it surprises me because it, it was so long ago and it's so well known uh, th- that uh, you know it happened and it, it ended the way it did and and the British did accomplish some major victories in the War of Independence too in other parts of the world but it's it really is something they just turn away from mm-hmm. and I and I I agree I think it's odd and especially in Langer where you know you get these local enthusiasts writing leaflets about Admiral Howe and the um, his life and so on and so forth.
0: Um, question in the chat from D.E. Reed. Um, given that the two generals never met, is there evidence of Washington and how exchanging correspondence?
1: About the dog? Yes, they did change co- exchange correspondence. <laughs> yes, they did. They did ac- occasionally write to one another um, to do with prisoner exchange and so on and so forth. I mean, th- there would be necessary military business that they'd have to exchange. Um, and, and there was, uh, in fact, there was one occasion I saw a letter General Howe wrote uh, uh, when I was at Ann Arbor, in, in which he obviously lost his temper. The House all had hot tempers, and so did Washington, um, because someone had spread a story that General Howe had allowed a, a man who was condemned to be hanged to be misused and, and abused before he was hanged, and. Howe got so angry, he wrote a letter to Washington saying, you know perfectly well that isn't true, which I think is really interesting because he obviously knew that Washington understood the kind of person he was, that they were both gentlemen soldiers and so on and so forth. So they did exchange letters, yes.
0: Very interesting. It's um, from Mark in the Q&A. How long did you research for this book? Did you need to travel or were you able to research from afar?
1: Yeah, um it it took about I would I think it took about 4 or 5 years of research. It was a much bigger project than I expected um because I I thought that I was going to mainly base it on Caroline's letters in the British Library, but her what she knew about the brothers was so vast. I mean, the how women I know got detailed military letters describing what was going on in the wars from the brothers. So I ended up having to expand what I knew so that I can reconstruct their world. And yes, I did travel. I went to the Huntington Library, to Ann Arbor, to Charlottesville, um, and I also um, used material in different parts of London. So I did have to travel extensively, yes. Mm
0: -hmm. Let's see, Um, from Chris, uh, what do we know about the relationship between the Howe brothers during the war?
1: Um, they yes, they actually worked very closely together, and people commented on it. Um, they uh, it was said that the army and navy had never cooperated so well, and in fact, in some ways, it was resented by some other some of the other British officers involved because they felt that the Howes. Decided things between themselves and didn't necessarily let other people in on, you know, uh, what their plans were. So it was it was a very close relationship.
0: Um, sort of relating to that, and when you mentioned um, them kind of gaining a negative reputation in the beginning, um, question from James: How exactly would a British officer be able to enrich himself by prolonging war?
1: I, well, I mean, I think it was a silly idea. <laughs> but the, the idea would be to just to just um carry on the fighting. I, I think the idea the, the um, it, it's a bit like the the ideas people had about World War One, um, mm-hmm. that that there were officers who just sat back and didn't fight very hard. And part of the reason that they thought this was because everybody assumed that they were having an easy time in America. And since they were having an easy time, what on earth was going on over there? Um, And the the assumption was that they were just letting it drag on, so that, for example, junior officers could get opportunities to get promotions and so on and so forth. And and at the, you know, General Howe had a colonelship of the Welsh Fusiliers, and which gave him a certain income because he was commander in chief as well, and so on and so forth. So the idea is they just. And they were also being paid as peace commissioners. So the idea is they just keep the salary rolling in for as long as I could. It, it's, it's actually kind of a silly idea. I think a, a, a sort of thing a civilian would think, I mean, if you were in the in a, a the front of a war, you, you'd realize you didn't really wanna hang around there no matter what the pay was for very long.
0: Yeah, more more of an idea of someone who wasn't experiencing it might yeah. think people are abusing the system. Um, yeah. All right, um, from, let's see, we're almost out of time where, uh, from Robert in the Q&A, he asks, I don't think that Richard Howe was in charge of the Navy during the entire duration of the revolution. Is this correct? And if so, why did this happen?
1: Yeah, it's correct. Yes, he came, General Howe came home in spring 1778 and Admiral came home, Admiral Howe came home about six months later. He stayed because he stayed in for the amount of time it took for his replacements to arrive. Um, and and because the French joined the war in spring of 1778, so there had to be somebody. Um, that meant that there was a real Navy there because the Americans didn't really have a serious Navy. The French did. Mm-hmm. Um, so in fact, Admiral Howe clashed with um, De Stang, um off Rhode Island, the Battle of Rhode Island um, in, in August, 1778, and uh, that actually went very much in his favor, so he returned home with a certain amount of uh, prestige. Unlike General Howe,
0: different different ends to uh, to participations there. Yeah, All right. um, we are unfortunately out of time. Thank you to those of you who submitted your questions. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Julie for a wonderful presentation.
1: can I just add if if people have questions and they they really want to know I, I you can just Google Julie Flavelle and find my website and you can send you can send me a question There you That's go awesome.
0: we didn't get to it the option is there. If you are interested in a copy of the book that is signed, we do have some signed book plates if you already have a copy and you want to a signature for that you can get that by contacting me you can respond to the email that the zoom link for this lecture was in um, or submit a contact form on our website francis tavern museum.org we have some of those they can be shipped to you um, or you can come by the museum and pick one up so if you are interested feel free to reach out that way um, our next lecture uh, really close it's actually going to be next thursday march 16th and that will be both virtually and in person at the museum, if you are in the New York City area. If you are in the area, also feel free to stop by and visit us. We are open Wednesday through Sunday, 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. We have some great recent exhibitions that open and you can come by and check those out.
1: All right, well, thank you for inviting me and thank you for being such an enthusiastic audience, everyone. <laughs> Yes, there are a lot of good questions.
0: Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for supporting us with donations and ticket sales for events. And we hope to see you all again soon. Have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you.